0: Before we get into the content today, I just want to remind you, we have two events coming up, uh, one two-day event in Ontario, and then another weekend event happening in South Carolina. So first, the two-day event that's going on in October is Liberty Podcast Live, and that means you're going to get to view our podcasts live and in person have your questions answered have a night of fellowship with all your favorite hosts Tim Tyso Dr. Michael Tyson, myself and Andrew will all be there and we all are looking so very much forward to those events so it's October 23rd And October 24th, the 23rd, we'll be doing a Liberty Dispatch Live together in a modified form. But nevertheless, I know you're going to want to see that. That's at Trinity Bible Chapel in Waterloo, Ontario. And then the following night, we're in Trinity Bible Church in Burlington, Ontario. And we'll be doing a live Liberty Lounge. So we very much look forward to getting to meet you guys, getting to interact with you, getting to answer your questions. And we know you're gonna be uh, loving that event. Uh, So be sure to stay tuned. If you sign up for the email list, like I talked about, we'll be having constant reminders and we'll also be reminding you on the shows as well and just so you know there is a small fee for general admission to these events 27.96 on our event bright page you can sign up for right over there and we will be sure to put that out in all the emails that we're sending out uh in the subsequent days as well concerning the event so we know you're going to look forward to that and hey If you want to get out of Canada for fall or you just happen to be one of our American listeners and want to meet up with some of our friends, be sure to go to South Carolina. In fact, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, for October 31st and November 1st, uh, or through November 1st, I should say, that is our event that we're doing, Spark Conference, equipping and training pastors, leaders, leaders. Christians to stand up for Christ in these tumultuous times. It's Dr. Michael Teason, the president of LCC, our chief litigator, James Kitchen, and some of our other friends like Dr. Joseph Boot and Nathaniel Wright, and some other wonderful guests. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that event, too. And if you're in Canada, what a better way to go down to beautiful South Carolina, see all the beautiful fall weather down there. And I know you're going to definitely enjoy that event as well. So just wanted to highlight those couple things for you before we get into what we're talking about today. And this is a wild episode. It's going to sound super weird. It's going to be like, what are these guys going on about? They definitely have... Uh, (laughs) star-studded their uh, tinfoil crowns like never before. It's weird stuff. Nevertheless, it's important stuff because it is current. This podcast that we're talking to, uh, Dr. Scott Masson, uh, we're we're talking to him about transhumanism. And it sounds weird, sounds conspiracy theory-ish, but... I assure you that it is hugely popular it's a ism that is hugely popular especially with big tech futurists and a lot of our global elites today and in fact it's a key component to the Internet of Things which is a part of the fourth industrial revolution a la the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab so though it sounds weird we ensure you it is important stuff to go over. So we do hope you benefit from the conversation with Dr. Masson on transhumanism and posthumanism and some of the ideological underpinnings of our elites around the world i hope it explains much of what you're seeing transform uh, transpire around you and hopefully it'll better equip you to speak out about what's happening and to also push back so we're not uh, a cog a widget in these uh machines that they're moving um so we do hope you enjoy the programming thank you for tuning in god bless
1: To this special edition of the liberty dispatch we have a wonderful guest with us again he has braved the liberty dispatch yet again he's one of the rare bold few who have come back and joined us for discussion so we have with us dr scott masson dr masson is a professor of english literature at tyndale university specializing in literary theory and he is also a former professor of mine and so that's uh, that's particularly important to note. He's a former pastor in Toronto, and he's the founder of Westminster Classical Christian Academy. He is a board member of the Ontario Party. We like them around here. He is also a regular speaker in the Culture Wars on TV, radio, and newspaper, including um, uh, maybe you've heard of some of these obscure publications like the National Post, the Toronto Star, the Epic Times, the Hamilton Spectator. Dr. Masson, thank you so much for joining us on the Liberty Dispatch for this discussion that I'm almost certain won't last on YouTube, but that's okay. We're going to have it nonetheless. Thanks for joining.
2: Great to be here. Thanks again, Andrew.
1: So to frame in this discussion, Dr. Masson, I want to uh, start off by saying unequivocally that I'm no fan of feminism. I, I rather abhor the ideology. But if I were to pick a favorite feminist, I would probably have to go with Camille Paglia. And it's not because she's Italian, although that is to her credit. It's because (laughs) she's not a purple-haired, shrieking, man-hating, burn-down-the-patriarchy kind of feminist. And she has an interesting analysis when she looks over the rise and fall of cultures and civilizations as it pertains to gender identity, maleness and femaleness. And basically – what she suggests is this that when cultures begin when civilizations begin when nations come into being you need men and women to be distinctly men and women in order to build a nation you need the men to actually build the infrastructure and the buildings and you need them to defend against warring and invading nations and as such you need the women to care for the children and care for the home and so men and women do what they are essentially built to do as a nation grows and prospers, it'll have its wars, its conflicts, but eventually the nation will enter into its decadent phase where it's prosperous and relatively safe, where it's not having to fight these same wars and all the buildings have been built. When a nation enters its decadent phase, male and femaleness ceases to be as important anymore. Men don't have to be men in the traditional sense, they're not fighting wars, they're not building bi- buildings. And women don't have to be women in the traditional sense because they can go to work as well if they want. And there's childcare available. So an androgyny will creep into cultures and civilizations when they enter their decadent phase. And she'll look back at Greco-Roman culture and see towards the end of these civilizations, right before their demise, there was a rise of androgyny. This is why all these Greek sculptures of boys are very effeminate. Pederasty was was growing and to a significant degree toward the end of... These civilizations and then they fall and they usually fall because another culture that's less developed, if you will, but that clearly understands the male female distinction is quite able to destroy and overtake this culture. And so her 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 basic hypothesis is that we in the West are in our decadent phase that we're so prosperous and so rich that men and women don't have to be men and women anymore. Therefore, androgyny rises and so. The, the question to start off our discussion is, one, if if you want to offer critique, agreement, or maybe some, some supplementary ideas to that hypothesis of the culture, the decadent phase, the androgyny. And then second, if that is the case, if there's any truth to that, are those the grounds that are necessary for the wild transgenderism? And the wild radical sexual ideology that we see here in the West, which is why we don't see it, for example, in obscure African tribesmen where men are men and women are women and they balk at the idea of transgenderism. So I guess to frame in the discussion your thoughts on her hypothesis and also does it make sense that that's the necessary ground from which the fruit of transgenderism and radical sexual ideology comes forth?
2: So I know Camille Paglia, not in person. Um, I know her work. I read uh, her work, Sexual Personae, in the mid-90s uh, when it came out. Um, she's a, a student of Harold Bloom's, who's a famous literary theorist. Um, and uh, very interesting. I mean, she's a she's lesbian, by the way, which might be of interest to the audience. Um, so lest she sound like a conservative she's certainly not by um, standards of 20 years ago but uh, and would not have understood herself that way but she likes some other feminists and you can count others in their ranks as well um even germaine greer to some degree but you you would certainly uh talk about uh uh, the author of Harry Potter uh, recently, uh, gosh, what's her name again? J.K. Rowling. Rowling, yeah. I've, I don't know why I drew a blank on her. <laughs> but are concerned about what is happening under the guise of feminism these days uh, in relation to gender identity and so forth, which is mm-hmm. er- eradicating the differences between male and female. Um, so she's get, w- what she is doing is trying to make a broad sociological Statement. I'm no expert in sociology. I read a bit about anthropology. Um, there was a study I looked at um, years ago when I was writing the National Post article um, responding on the sex ed thing by J.D. Unwin. Uh, he wrote a work in uh, 1934 called Sex and Culture. He studied 80 primitive tribes and six old uh, civilizations, 5,000 years of history, and he Associated the same sort of thing that Pagley is talking about there, that there's a um civilization depends on sexual restraint, and to some degree, although he doesn't get into this too much, um, because it's less of a an issue there, a distinction between male and female roles, identities, etc. Um, and so you can see the collapse of sexual restraint, um, sexual identity etc when those things start to get blurry if you will um, then cl- civilizations just basically collapse so you, you could cite Palia, Paglia however you want to I don't even know how she pronounces her name um, or you could go to Anwen, and they they note the same thing and um, as I say she's she's not a traditional feminist um, by being lesbian but she's also not what we would now call uh, cyborg feminists, which sounds like I'm being de- pejorative, but actually there's a <clears throat> there's a scholar by the name of Donna uh, Haraway who wrote a Cyborg Manifesto. It's called the Cyborg Manifesto. I think it's 1995. I can't remember the exact date of that either, um, but I think it's around there. Uh, and it's an essay basically that suggests that um, the next frontier for feminism is is to go beyond the the identification of a woman as a woman that you can add things onto that, um, just like a cyborg and uh, that so what what we're getting there in the beginning of cyborg feminism is uh, the groundwork for gender identity, which is a construct. And so we can push femininity to be include what we want. Uh, to some degree, it's an inter- it's an interesting essay, very in- very influential essay in in feminism. But it's a later form of feminism that earlier feminists like Rowling and others simply find abhorrent because they see the consequences of that, which is that all of the rights that they fought for, whether they were you know fighting for the right to vote or fighting for the right to work or the right to be considered equal under the law, those sorts of things which were not established but often understood but not codified in law, uh, were going to be under threat if gender identity is simply a matter of perception and a man can perceive himself to be a woman and vice versa. And men can compete in female athletics and, and so forth, and men can go into women's washroom if they just identify because this category of gender allows them to ignore the distinctions that were necessary to fight for that group as an identity group. So yeah, I, th- I think the concept of cyborg feminism is quite helpful there. And it, it is a late developing thing. And as I say, these earlier women that would be seen as radicals at one point and would have seen themselves as fighting that way are now fi- finding themselves str- strangely sounding like conservatives. Yeah. They, I mean, they
0: haven't progressed with the dialectic. It's, they, 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 yeah,
2: they've stopped there and said, but well, hold on, that doesn't make any sense. And no, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm not comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, because essentially, I think they rightly understand that if. If female and male, if these gender uh, distinctions are just constructs, then feminism at root is destroyed. It's the same way that within the LGBTQIA moniker, the T really uh, is, is saying something that cuts totally against the basic argumentation of both lesbian and gay. And, and the gay worldview and and their their genesis. So it's it's interesting that you have this inter-Nicene warfare by um, these these progressives because of how this revolution is progressing and people like Rowling are considered turfs, right? trans-exclusionary radical feminists um, now because they won't continue to pre- press on with the dialectic. But I think it's an inter- interesting concept because... Um Peter Jones has also talked quite a bit about androgyny and androgyny being rooted in, in that um, basically monist world and life view that collapses all things in on themselves. And he talks a lot about how it has its roots in occultism as well. So it does. Yeah. So that's the interesting (laughs) part that we, in very many ways, we're kind of finding (coughs) ourselves. Oh, pardon me. (coughs) choked on my word, um, in very many ways, we're kind of finding ourselves back in even a first century context, uh, as as you guys have already um, mentioned, but with an added a bit of technology on things. And that's kind of where that's, this yeah. le- leads into the discussion that we wanted to have with you, uh, Dr. Masson. Um, we, at the end of our conversation that we had with you last time, we kind of got into transhumanism, and yeah. that's essentially what we want to talk to you about today. I remember I was going through a history class, um, and it was at Whitfield College, um, and it was the class was done by—it was a series of lectures given by R.J. Dooney. And the last lecture that he gave was basically um, a critique of the 20th century. And what he brought up was a lot of transhumanism. And I remember thinking in my mind, this seems totally weird and out of place. Like we're dealing with history, historical events, and now we're going into transhumanism. And my, I just kind of shut my ears because uh, I was like, I can't. I don't have the Velcro strips in my brain for this. Nevertheless, as we've seen growingly um, explicit in our society, there is a push for transhumanism. So I want to play, Dr. Masson, a couple clips for you, and maybe you can respond um, to them and kind of use this as a springboard to talk a little bit about what is transhumanism and why... uh, Why should we be worried about it? Why does this discussion matter? Why isn't it just theoretical nonsense? So I want to play you a couple clips. This first one we've played before on our programs. uh, It's Yuval Noah Harari talking about hacking human beings. And then the next one is, surprise, surprise, the uh, son-in-law of ex-president Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, talking about transhumanism as well. Now, in
1: the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough. And nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon,
0: at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. Friend, and... And then finally, I think that from, uh, you know, the last year, the one thing I've tried to put a priority on
2: since I left the White House was, you know, getting some exercise in. I think that there's a, a good probability
0: that my generation is hopefully with the advances in science, either, you know, the the, the first generation to live forever or the last generation that's going to die. And so uh, we need to keep ourselves in, in pretty good shape. So there you have it, uh, Dr. Basson, two different people talking about The advance, the advances in technology, essentially changing human makeup forever. Right? We 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 have uh, Noah Harari saying, "Hey, now we know enough about biology that we can hack into human beings and their genetics." And then you have Jared Kushner saying, "Hey, I'm a part of." what the first generation that's gonna live forever we're gonna we're gonna see the end of human beings dying. How can we understand these radical clips outside of the context of transhumanism or is this the 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 essential starting point for us understanding it?
2: well i, I mean i I know that for most people these are seem like new things, and Matthew, you suggested that it was at one point for you a bit beyond your capacity to understand how anyone would even conceive of this as a project or something to happen. But I, I, th- I see this going back all the way to the mid 19th century. There's a, an attempt in the mid and late 19th century to reduce human nature to, um, or even before that to biochemical things, to reduce humanity to um, its uh, material, a very material level. And then these are just attempts to augment that, to make the sort of like the $6 million man to make us better, stronger, faster, um, or immortal, as uh, that uh, clip suggested. And um, and you can add to that that um, there's also an attempt to more morally enhance um, people, to make them less fearful, to make them more courageous, to make them... Um, uh, so forth. So that sort of classical conditioning is there, and it's in the psychology of B.F. Skinner. Um, he makes it quite explicit in a book in 1971. I think he, it's called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. You know, It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 18 weeks. Um, and really, it dealt with uh, a topic that uh, one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, dealt with in uh, this work called The Abolition of Man. There you go. And um, interestingly, Skinner cites Lewis as the foremost defender of uh, freedom and dignity. The foremost mm-hmm. defender. Um, because,
0: uh, Dr. Masson, just so people know, B.F. Skinner is a behaviorist. And basically, behaviorism believes in uh, uh, no free will. It's essentially determinism.
2: It is determinism. Yes. And and he sees... Uh, Humanity as basically something that is, is the uh, can be controlled entirely through um, um, basically classical conditioning behaviorism, just sort of like you a stick and a carrot approach to things, and and people can be moved in that way. So he denies free will. He denies uh, that we have any moral nature as human beings. Uh, or that we have inherent dignity. All these things that we also associate with human personhood and also associate with being distinct distinctions that reside between a human being on the one hand and uh, animals on the other. So it has a flattening effect. It reduces us to a, um, again, a biochemical type of thing. And I'm not sure that Kushner or Harari um, sees that much differently. And they just want to make it better. So that's the transhumanist element. But in a sense, they think that there is a human nature there and that they have that. And they just want to augment it and make it better. That's one approach. But the actually, the thing I spoke to last time about was post-humanism. Because there are people <laughs> there who have effectively noted. They've noted what I've or we've just agreed on, which is that view of human nature if it has no free will, if it has no dignity, is no different than a machine. In which case, why preserve the human thing at all? Why are we suggesting that it is something that needs to be extended indefinitely, given eternal life, um, when really those same uh, people are proliferating and producing carbon footprints, whatever, and threatening the existence of the whole planet, so, but they have a common view of human nature. It's a reductionist view. It's a very flat, material one. And yet, the difference between us and the animals is we produce that much more carbon, or allegedly, and therefore the solution is we just need to reduce those numbers of people, um, because those people aren't people anyway. They're just biochemical machines that happen to do very bad things
1: They're and units threaten the that whole of a particular, uh, a particular. Yeah. They're a particularly into the uh, atmosphere, which is a
2: carbon-producing. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and yeah. so, in both both views are reductionist. Mm-hmm. One is self-centered enough to want to perpetuate itself ad infinitum. So I won't want to live forever. The other mm-hmm. says, "Well, actually." that view of human nature makes us no different than the animals. Why are our rights more important than animal rights and the rights of the plants? And the answer is there's no reason. And so and it's
0: funny that you bring up those two. Cause I, I under, I, th- I think from the little that I've seen from Noah Harari, he would maybe be even more of a post humanist. Yes. transhumanist. Yes, I, I, I don't because... call him
2: a Yeah, I didn't call him a transhumanist. You did. I think yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's a post humanist. Yeah, and, that's and he right. And fits in cause... very much with the agenda 2030 and the environmental movement. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so there's two. I appreciate that distrin- distinction that there's two. Um, strains that have essentially the same anthropological understanding, but they express themselves in different ways. Contrary Uh, ways. Yeah. Kushner is talking about augmenting um, human nature to make it live forever. And it's actually funny that you talk about – the post-humanism because the title of the lecture that we played for you've know noah harari is will the future be human question mark so that would be the post-humanism that you're talking about
2: yeah indeed and in both cases however what they're calling human is not what i would say defines yes. human nature yeah they're yes just...
0: both are a rejection of the maga day obviously
2: yes and, and the notion of personhood they reject um the fact that god's de- um self-defines as a person and and in christian theology we're going to talk about the personhood of god as being his essential characteristic it's the triune god god the father god the son god the holy spirit and they reduce it to something biological they reject the spiritual altogether Um, they see us um, as um, basically at the top of the created order, if you will, if, the, if, if they even want to use such terms. And um, everything else is just projections of our fantasies, those ideas about God and so forth. Well, forget all that. So they, they're, they're reductionist in their view of human nature. They think that all of our instincts, et cetera, come from below. We're motivated by selfish genes, if you will, to use Richard Dawkins' phrase. Um, and, and so then we're no different than the other animals and we should we should not attribute to ourselves rights, prerogatives, um, privileges that um, we don't give to others because we just make them up. And even human nature is something we've attributed to ourselves unfairly, unjustly and, and falsely. So then the real issue in this is what is a human being? what And what is a person? Because I think um, even the ancient world, you said, you know, Peter Jones and others have talked about how the ancient pagans um Gravitated at some points towards, um, you know, this uh, this idea of androgyny, and that, that's true. But they also never, or with one exception, understood them to be no different than the animals. And the one exception was the cynics. The cynics lay on the ground like dogs. That's the word from which they and and they these pretensions. To be something more than just animals, we're just, you know, power grabs. That's the view of the modern world. We're just pretending to be more than we are.
1: So, Dr. Masson, I want to ask a question to go back to something that you you said. I want to pick up on something that you said in 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 one of your statements just a few moments ago, uh, and it had to do with what we see in the mid nineteenth century. Some of these ideas that are that are growing that lead to some of this and. You know we need to think about this biblically obviously we we understand that there are biblical and true presuppositions and so when i think about this discussion my mind goes all the way back to the garden where in the garden you essentially had the distinctions between the creator and the creature and you had god who is god in his essence and then here you have him engaging with humans made in his image but distinctly human in their personhood And one of the many things that's a a part of the lie that the snake brings them is that you can be like God. So your humanness, whatever it is, that's great, but you can be like him. You can be more than just human. You can be God. And so that, I, I think, is kind of the first moment that you have the temptation in the world where you have someone who puts forth the idea you don't have to be just human. You can be more than what you are and You can be something totally different than what you are. Another one of those touch points, another one of those pillars, would it be fair to say that that would be Darwinian theory, which, again, reduces humans down to a strict materialism that is a flattening of the fact that you're no different than the fish and the rocks? There's just been more time and more of a, uh, a, a driven... Mindless, though somehow deterministic process that gets you to where you are, which also subverts our free will and our humanity. Um, I, is that what you had in mind when you talked when you were talking about the mid nineteenth century and these ideas of biology? Were you thinking about Darwinian theory or something else as well?
2: No, I wasn't thinking about Darwinian theory, but I mean, Darwin, Darwinism is just a type of developmentalism. So it's just doing what you said that it, it suggests that we. Began in lower things and we've evolved upwards, become more and more like we are now, but we were once not rational, etc. We once began in the zoo and progressed upwards to having certain capacities. Now, Darwin says that, but that's the general view that you get way back in the 18th century, even long before Darwin. I think Darwin's already playing with an idea uh, and just giving a sort of uh, Scientific um, proof, if you will, to that. Um, whether the proof is accurate, I think not myself, and I think there are inherent problems with that. But, but the theory already exists there, and he's just giving evidence to the theory. But no, what I'm suggesting is that in the mid 19th century, um, C.S. Lewis comments again on this in a uh, lecture he gave his, Cambridge, uh, his inaugural lecture as a professor at Cambridge University. Uh, that the scientific method which had been applied to the natural world before then was applied to human nature. And so we uh, became the subjects of scientific investigation in what began eventually well it was called the um, eventually be called the social sciences in English, in which uh, human nature was studied statistically as if we could measure, um, and through those sorts of analyses, determine who and what we are and come to objective understandings as if it could all be measured through stats. Like the way the COVID um, situation was studied, again, projections based on numbers and reducing everything. See, if, we're, there's no, if there's no spirit to human nature, if there's no free will, if there's no uh, possibility of individuality, then we can reduce everything about us to the same sort of statistical analysis that we could note with animals, because we all do the same thing, we're entirely predictable, we can be based on biochemical things, we can um, see the essence of human nature captured there. And that happens from the mid-19th century onward roughly, and disciplines like psychology and sociology and anthropology start to see things in very reductionist ways. so that's what I'm talking about and that attempt to do that gets rid of the distinctively the distinctive qualities of human nature and and affects what again Lewis calls the abolition of man. So it, he particularly is worried about the fact that it dismisses as irrelevant judgments about goodness and beauty. But and Lewis says these are the essence of all education. Uh, to teach people to love what they ought to love and to hate what they ought to hate. Um, Because we need those um, virtues, if you will, in people to create good citizens, to create good husbands, to create good fathers, to create good friends, all of those things. So we have to cultivate goodness in people and we need to lead them to appreciate what's beautiful and to despise what's ugly. We can't collapse those two things and suggest that they come from a, a low basis. There is there is such a thing as goodness and there is such a thing as beauty and there is such a thing as truth. And from a Christian point of view, those those things are united in the person of God.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah, yeah, and that's really interesting, Dr. Masson, because Essentially, like even Nietzsche recognized this, right? That the death of God, so called, would lead to the death of man, and I, I think it's just so interesting to under, like that 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 is the case of what's happening here. This this idea yeah, that he, he
2: thought it was a good thing.
0: Yes, he thought it was a good thing. Yes, absolutely. But he recognized its necessity, right? <laughs> um, he Nes- as a nihilist from
2: his presuppositions. Yes.
0: Yes. Exactly from from his nihilistic tendency he thought it was a good thing we would say that's a terrible thing an awful thing um but it's just really interesting to see that there's this that there's this necessary like suicidal tendency that is wrapped up into this program of homo mensura that man is the measure if we excise god and him from the conversation it only leads to the destruction of human beings because we are, as as those who believe in what the Bible says about human beings, we understand that that's necessary because we're made in the image of God. So it can only lead that, to that kind of suicidal tendency in man, and that's kind of what you're seeing in... In these transhumanist posthumanist movements, they they basically don't believe in human nature as as we would understand it that there's uh, that it's fixed. Um, they they would understand that human nature is totally and infinitely malleable, able to be manipulated. Yeah, depending on the right environment and the right inputs and the right technological (laughs) advances and stuff like that. But that that is also ultimately the destruction of what makes man, man.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So they the transhumanists are just the more optimistic uh, branch of the same enterprise. And they think they can ride that horse um, and, and it can take them to eternal life. And the more philosophically consistent types, the Nietzsche's, uh, realize that it means the abolition of man or beyond that, going beyond good and evil and the destruction of the Imago Dei. And, and he thinks that we ought to pursue that. Uh, and that's for the sake of the Ubermensch, who is, who is on the uh, another level. And, and, uh, and we're leading there. So we, we ought to embrace that as the next... Inevitable step for human humanity to take, and and nowadays we have a different imperative. Nietzsche would think it's absurd, but and that's that we're going to save the planet by doing this. But really, it's just it's just green nihilism. It's dark green nihilism.
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay, we, we kind of laid out some of the philosophy and some of the views that kind of undergird this transhumanistic posthumanistic movement. You mentioned the 2030 agenda. You have mentioned this being applied and how we dealt with COVID. How did this become the dominant worldview in institutions in the world? How do we get to this point so we can wrap our heads around the fact that you know, what we're seeing in this scientific socialist state is kind of the culmination of this worldview put into praxis?
2: Well, that's a big question. We got time,
0: Dr. Vasson.
2: (laughs) Yeah, okay, well, uh, how do we get to this point? Well, the the universities, um, historically, it's a Christian institution, it's a medieval Christian institution. Um, It has certain presuppositions about human nature, and it has the goal of understanding God as well. There are certain features of the medieval university, and they are distinctively Christian. It is a Christian institution. There are no universities in the ancient world. There's there's Plato's Academy. There's Aristotle's Lyceum. There's, there's absolutely an intellectual tradition there. But they don't have universities. And they don't have universities, I would submit, uh, because they, um, although they do r- really value and promote rationality, they don't understand that... Um, God can be known. And in particular, they can't, right, for Aristotle, he's an unknown, um, you know, the first mover, the right? But, but not beyond that, he's unknowable. But in Christian understanding, there is also a solution to a problem of the ancient world uh, called the problem of the one and the many. And and uh, many writers have talked about this issue, Um and um and there's some really good books on this, but the problem of the mon- one and the many is basically that which bedeviled ancient philosophy. Is ultimate reality one, unified in its nature? That's what the philosopher the name of Parmenides said that everything is being, or is it many in its so we have little th- this is and thats. Um, and they're distinct, and they have being. So we, you know, is there really this cup in front of me? Is this a book? Is this a distinct? Is this an object? Can we know these things? Yes, they say, and and they're real, and we know things through those particular things. But what is the concept that unites them so that we say that they have existence? Well, that's it. So is it one or is it the other? And they, they fundamentally disagree with one another. But in the Trinity, we have an assertion that God is... One, there's only one God, and yet He has three persons. So He's equal, and and the two, the one and the many, are equally ultimate. And it resolves in the Trinity this philosophical problem that reality can be uh, understood in Plato's ideas. So have unities of beauty, truth, goodness, being, however you want to look at it, but also that. The particular created world also exists; it's real; it's not just a an appearance. And so, with that, it pushes the university towards um, modern science eventually.
0: But, and even the word "university," right, Doctor Bassett, like unity amongst diversity, is is built into that 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 word itself.
2: It is a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a yeah. Um, Yes, and there's something that unified, and also it's something that is uh, God-honoring to try and understand that as well. Yes, I think there's that. And and so it's there in the university, and then come the 18th century, the and, and ever more afterwards, there's a movement away from the Enlightenment onward, a repudiation of the Christian basis for these um, discoveries, and a, a sense that we can move beyond those things. Um And the one thing that, and this is where this brings the discussion to this point here, so the the Christian universities eventually repudiate their Christian origins, some of them overtly, and, you know, remove it altogether, others just implicitly, oh, that's irrelevant. Um, And they banish theology from the studies uh, of universities altogether. In the 19th century, you know, German universities start to throw theology out and, and that's how the seminary movement begins in North America is because of this sense that um, God is not being even studied in the universities. Well, we're going to have to do it elsewhere, etc. But, but even more so than that, what is being disputed there then is the connection between God's personhood and our personhood As if we can study the humanities without understanding human beings as bearing the imago day, and that you move the one, it affects the other. And that's what's happened. It's inescapable, right? But with that, I would say, you lose the unifying feature of all knowledge then. And so it then breaks down and you get subject areas disconnected. There's no unifying thing. Even reasoning goes out the window. And reasoning becomes rationalizing, and it becomes perspectivalism, and it becomes relativism, and all sorts of. Again, even even your your sexual nature gets broken down into a gender identity. That that m- move away from the university, what it does, and and in particular the unifying character of all knowledge. Mm. You know, in Colossians, uh, one. It'll talk about how in Christ all things hold together. If you want to reject that and you want to replace it, well, what is the thing in which all things hold together if it's not that? And, the, and what has effectively happened is we've removed that as if it would have no effect. And now, now we see the effect. Is what will replace that then? And if there's not one thing, well, then there will be multiple things that seek to compete politically in, as a power move for that unifying feature. And now we get identity politics coming in. And so maybe we're going to replace that one identity, identity in the person of Christ, who combines man, God together, and replace it with various identities who are now vying for supremacy within the university, claiming. Uh, through various appeals to grievances, historic and otherwise, that their identity ought to be celebrated. And you could be politic about it and say, well, we'll celebrate them all. We'll include all of them, in which case we end up with pantheism, in which there is no distinctions, real distinctions. It's all just a matter of perspective. And there is no real good and there is no real evil. Again, I could kill you. A cancer could kill you. What's the difference between the two?
1: It seems that the, the apart from the the different identities that are competing, the question is who defines or who's the definer. And so either God is the definer of what makes a human human and what a person's identity is and what it seems to be, what seems to be the prevailing identity of the definer now, and and really postmodernism presses this into our world is that the self, the subjective self, the experiences, the emotions, the desires, that is what defines, your identity, and you now become the creator of your own identity and your own destiny and your own purpose, which again, interestingly enough, yeah. takes us all the way back. That Apparently, this is something that has been a struggle for humans from the beginning is a rejection of God's claim to define who they are and how they operate. And the human being since the fall says, no, that's I do that. I define who I am and how I operate, and we're seeing that in full bloom now. We're seeing that to to degrees that, at least in North America, we haven't seen.
2: No, I don't think we've ever seen it with the same um, lack of consequences. Is that Um,
0: because we're so far removed now from the vestiges of Christendom? in our society that this um this rotten fruit is kind of can take full full bloom or it, it it's we we're now so far removed from a lot of the foundations of what were integrated in our society that now is this kind of the revolution has kind of been complete and now we're just living out this philosophy consistently within our society is that kind of your your take on this i think that's
2: got to be a part of it for sure. Um, but also the technology that allows that to that sort of uh, departure from the conditions of human nature to um, happen. Uh, so it allows us to live under the illusion that we can create a reality and live in it. And the question is whether we actually can. And I think the evidence that i see is that this is not going this is an experiment that's already failed but the but the failure has not been <laughs> sufficiently grasped um for for us to pull back from that and in, and if the posthumanists are very happy for everything to burn
0: yeah 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 no i think it's it, it's well said so you, kate how does this now what we've seen over the last two and a half years how does this bring us to this point? How does this bureaucratic administrative state, um, the socialist kind of scientific state that governs and controls all things, how does this play into this discussion? Because I think this is where this stuff... Gets legs; it becomes real for people because we're living through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these, the ideas of posthumanism, transhumanism—they're connected to that that idea, right?
2: Yes, it is. I mean, because what what the technology allows you to do is to re- reduce people to um, their virtual identity, and it allows you to see people in terms of numbers, in terms of binary code, in terms of your you know QR code. So you can identify a person, that is your identity, effectively, but, and now you can, uh, with that identity being attributed to you, you can shut people off, you can, you know, deprive them of credit, you can do whatever, you can punish those, et cetera, who are opposed to this view of human nature, which they want to impose on everyone, from which everybody suffers, quite frankly, but they can, oppose, they can impose it against particular people at first, but eventually it, it spreads out because actually the view of human nature is reductionist across the board and the revolution just simply spreads. Now, again, from the transhumanists, the people that benefit from this because they own the technology, they'll think that they're insulated from this consequence and they don't give a rip because they're making a lot of money out of it.
1: And they get to be the ones that live. And forever. they get to be the ones They're that in the live same forever. Way that the laptop and... class thought that they were unaffected by lockdowns and COVID madness. Little do they realize, no, 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 it, it's coming for you too. You're not immune yeah, from so it. Yeah, so it's the
2: golden rule: the one who makes the gold and owns the gold makes the rules. So that's that. That's their. That's their. Yeah. So that's, that's 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 the benefit for them, and they can see that people are going to suffer for that. But hey, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. But the post humanists have a more radical, more consistent view of this, and they they as they are opposed to the the tech people they want them to come down, they particularly hate the <laughs> the tech people that are making the huge pots of money out of this because they 're egalitarians. Consistently, they want, in particular, those who are wealthy to burn. And so they're going to come after them as well. So that the whole problem here is the defective and, quite frankly, uh, sick view of human nature that they're pushing because it suits their agenda. And this is why I think the real uh, thing that needs to be said to people is you need to repent for worshipping this view uh, and for for believing that you are advancing your own self-interest in any way um, through uh, an idolatrous view of human nature, including your own, that you can construct yourself, that you can be autonomous. That's the Enlightenment's view. It's also the view of Adam and Eve in the garden. I can act autonomously as if there is no moral law, there's no law upon me, and I can do what God has expressly forbid, which is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's God that calls it that. It's not the tree of knowledge, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they decide that they're going to eat of that tree. <laughs> and they get the good and evil that they <laughs> um, that they wanted. <laughs> they wanted.
0: <laughs> Instead of having only the good and being in perfect they uh, had un- broken communion with God, they decided to add add the evil. So they can be like gods, essentially, right? Because that's what uh, the serpent's saying. Hey, he's just afraid you're going to be like him if you know good from evil. Um, but that that wasn't what they were intended to, to do. So, I mean, that's that's the amazing part of it, is we can root this impulse back to the garden, right? Back to original sin, um, back to that cosmic treason that took place from our first parents, our, our federal and representatives. And not that long after with um, the
1: Tower of Babel. It's not that long. You don't get that well, far in Genesis that's before what this, you see another that's spike what, that, that, again. That's,
2: yeah, so that's very good. And I would yeah. say that Lewis, again... Uh, seizes upon that and writes upon it in this si- his science fiction trilogy and that that hideous strength which is the third yes. of the volume in that is particularly about a modern day tower of babel which interestingly the backdrop for that novel is a university
1: which seems like where mm, we are in the yeah. sense that this that the 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 shrinking of the world the globalizing in the world is basically to say there should be no distinctions. It's, it's a return to Babel. It's a return mm-hmm. to a, a very godless kind of oneness, but mm-hmm. not a biblical understanding yeah. of unity in the midst of diversity. We're going back to Babel. They're, they're trying to reconstruct the tower yeah. in some way.
0: Yeah, that, that the, the destruction of that creature-creator distinction that is so core to what Christianity is, inevitably, as you said, Dr. Masson, flattens everything out, right? We can't make the proper distinctions to actually understand our existence because we've, um, because of a religious and sinful impulse, we have excised God from the conversation, but it's in him that we can understand all things. Um, It's interesting, too, you mentioned this his strength um, and, you know, it taking place in a university because this is a quote from that lecture I was talking about. Uh, Rush Duny quotes Charles Francis Potter um, who wrote Humanism, a New Religion. And he's talking about how essentially the new temple of this new religious system is the humanistic state school. And this is what Potter writes. Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every public school is a school of humanism what can the theistic sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teachings and that kind of can explain how we've got to this point is people have been indoctrinated and catechized into a new religion and that new religion is humanism. And now we're seeing that humanism take full root in our society. And now we're seeing it bloom into the scientific socialist state that fundamentally has a different view of, of the church, the state of how human beings interact with the state. And that's, how we are in the moment we are in. Um, any comments on that, Doctor Masson?
2: Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as uh, hostile towards humanism as that quote suggests. Um, I I would call it post-humanism, because again, again, humanism, rightly understood, is pursuing uh, and understanding ourselves to bear the image of God, and honoring people as a consequence of the of the fact that they bear the image of God. And so there is a there is a proper path for and a right it, understanding so, right but and so, so
0: that 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 would that would you be going back to um the renaissance humanism? christian and, humanism? yeah part of well. what made the christian reformation humanism what it was Genesis, was the return yeah. to the humanities that is part of what parts would like the right, to the original right way, understanding is, of god yeah. and
2: and humanity
1: right okay
0: yeah okay so that that's an important distinction because a lot of people don't actually know the history of humanism that it started with Well, that's why we would distinguish uh,
1: secular humanism. Yeah, okay. Right, that's that's what we we label it as such.
0: Yeah,
2: so the Enlightenment would be secular humanism, but now Mm -hmm. we're in, and again, the distinctions matter, I think we are in post-humanism. The secular humanists still wanted to hold on to human nature, and they thought they could do it without God. What we've seen, however, is that they have no longer been able to hold on to that, and some of them are in grave distress over that. People, even like Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson and company, are very distressed that liberal education is dying and being killed off by, by the, the new identity social justice warriors in the presence of the universities, and it's throwing them out regarding them as the enemies of education, et cetera. And they're just saying, like, this is, this is terrible. And of course, it is terrible. But that's what they but there again, there's no center to hold that from happening
1: this is mm. and this it's funny you bring mm. that up that they are they look at what they believe they represent, and then they're looking at what we see in the world today and 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 what they would say would be something like, this is a corruption of or this is uh, uh, this is what we believe taken in the wrong direction to the nth degree, but it's distinct from what we hold in the same way that. Second wave feminists would look at third and fourth wave feminism and say, that's very different. And the irony in both of those camps, and this is what happens when you reject a biblical worldview, is that we understand yes. that the seeds of what we see now mm-hmm. in full bloom were there from the very beginning anyways. Right? I, I've had this discussion yes. with with feminists who would say, we believe in equality and voting and women should be able to work. But we don't, we don't like the, the transgender mania. And I, I've tried to, one person in particular, I've tried to, to bring to bear the fact that the seeds of transgender madness go all the way back to the first wave of feminism and the suffragettes. Because all the way baked into it, the, the initial yeast before it spread, was the fact that men and women, the distinctions between them can be flattened out. That there really is no distinction, and 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 really, ones interchangeable. Like the sea, it's there in its in its genesis, and now as it as it blooms all the way, they say, where did that? Where did this come from? Where did this monster come from? And and we're trying to. I'm trying to tell them, and we're trying to. We would tell someone like Jordan Peterson, your worldview doesn't have guardrails. There's no end to it. It will by necessity become this, unless, as Schaefer would say the good biblical moorings can hold it together and inform it without that it was always going to become this and so they they're amazed that it's here and they can't see the fact that it was always going to get there if it was their worldview apart from god that was pressed out
2: yeah i think i think that's pretty accurate um i don't think you need to repudiate um something some features of first wave feminism some of the Ideas uh, it, where where women are being oppressed um, in certain instances, the law ought to be able to protect equal image bearers of God who are female, right? And I don't think anybody is concerned about that. But but you're correct. If there are no um, presuppositions that they're going, going to acknowledge about human nature, aside from autonomy, I get to determine who I am and what I am, then you end up with the absurdity that we have right now where— You know the human Ontario Human Rights Code is there, trying to protect women from being sexualized and forced to wear, you know, like hooters, wear certain low cut dress and have to wear low cut dresses, high heels, tight clothing, whatever, sexualize. And at this, so they want to defend women from being sexualized, and at the same time, they're going to allow this school teacher in Halton to wear these massive prosthetic breasts and they're going to defend him. So they they protect a man's identity to, to dress up as a woman in an absurd fashion, but they don't want women to be <laughs> stereotyped that way. And and so then they, they end up in this radically and absurd position where everybody's laughing and saying, how is this possible? But the Human Rights Code is protecting both of those positions and those two things cannot be protected at the same time. One is going to go and the other is not. And what's going to go? Well, the women's rights. Sorry, that's wrong. And they gone. can't
1: see it because they're they can't see They're building it. In literally, literally. They're building it literally. They're trying to build a house in midair. And, <laughs> and we're standing on a solid bit of foundation, right? We see what we've seen yeah. this in in other ways too. Coming out of the the the, the COVID madness and 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 then the trucker convoy stuff, people who we had once you know linked arms with in the freedom movement are now looking at us and saying, "Wait a minute." So you don't support gay mirage? You don't support LGBT? Initiatives, I thought you were about freedom. I thought you were about people not being told what to do. And the response to them is someone has to hold the rule book. The problem with some people in the freedom movement or the problem with the trans and the post-humanism movement, again, is a question of who is the definer. They want to hold the rule book for themselves. They want to write and hold the rule book. But that will only lead to chaos, whereas we say, no,
0: God writes and holds the rule book.
1: He's the one that's holding the tape measure, not you.
0: Yeah. So the, that, and I think that's kind of like this cosmic irony: is man's quest to be free from God makes him A slave. more enslaved than ever to himself, and enslaved actually, to himself and his yes, desires and his exact, base passions. Exactly. Right
2: and sin, and yeah. sin
0: yep and, yeah exactly. and sin Chiefly. and sadly and sadly what that tends to lead to in culture is being slaves of other men the, that idea that idea is in that's essentially what Paul's getting at when he's writing about slavery in in the New Testament is there's something incongruent about being free in Christ being a bond servant of Christ and being a bond servant of another man, right? Being being slave to another uh, other, another man, and that's why Christianity didn't, though it didn't topple slavery around the world immediately. The the basic presuppositions that come from that world and life view destroyed the foundations of slavery therein because it understood that in that category, so. That is the that is the the dangerous impulse of where we're headed in society. Yeah, is, yeah that's a great point. Is is we're we're headed to slavery? Yeah, slavery, yeah. because I think I I think the only outcomes, and this is actually what Rush Dooney said before I could understand it. He said the only two possible outcomes of this scientific, modern socialistic state are either um, authoritarian tyrannical despotism or anarchy and anarchy almost always leads to to the latter to, to authoritarianism well, does, yeah because because it creates chaos that's shape that's Schaefer's point it, in the
1: Great Evangelical Disaster that when the the moorings of biblical Christianity fall apart yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> that what happens is the culture will go into chaos and you'll need someone to hold that mm-hmm. chaos together. And if it's not going to be yeah, go the truth, man. and so in yeah, many ways we saw that in, in the many French ways Revolution, Darwin was right? right in a sense yeah. that his 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 worldview pressed out will inevitably lead to the survival of the strong because if it's if it's not the mm-hmm. rule of God, it's the rule of self, and if it's the rule of mm-hmm. self, there will always be one of those selves who's more rich and more powerful Strong and more intelligent. Yeah. And so he'll be able to manipulate all the other ones who are being governed by the rule of self, but he'll do so in such a way to command and control and enslave them. So it's either, it's either God yep. or you, but if it's you, it'll always become the rule of the tyrant when the rule of the mm-hmm. self is base level.
0: So Dr. Masson... What we're dealing with, and I think a lot of writers, we've mentioned them throughout the conversation. R.J. uh C. Gr- uh, oh shit, what's his Schaefer, name? Schaefer,
2: Francis Schaefer. C.S. Lewis, uh, no. Yes, okay. C.S. Lewis,
0: no. I. C. Greg Singer. That's that's I was okay. Okay, let's start that again. Um, okay. okay. So Dr. Masson, we mentioned throughout the conversation some of these great men of the Christian faith, C.S. Lewis, R.J. Rushdoony, Francis Schaeffer, all these men were able to say the greatest enemy that the church is facing in the 20th and the 21st century is the scientific socialistic state. Why haven't the churches heeded these voices of these men who are not not only insightful when it came to spiritual things but also cultural things and and what can the church do to push back against this like that's when i read that these men and i see that they were prescient in understanding what this is all going to lead to how did the church get it so wrong
1: i'm going to give one out of the way just I'll, i'll set it up uh, government indoctrination education centers. Get your kids out of government schools step. And the problem is, yeah, there's a bit of there's they've a allowed bit of that. that. No, I don't, I don't need to Andrew, worry about my yeah. kids. I'll just let the government I'll let this, the government school train my kids mm. for me. It'll be fine. And then, you know, like that quote you read one hour of Sunday school, I'll be able to undo whatever garbage comes in. The, the church has been yeah. completely <laughs> asleep when it comes to the necessity and the importance of educating their children. And so mm-hmm. we need that we need a reawakening that you're responsible for the education of your kids, um, and that probably mm-hmm. means not government schools.
2: That's yeah. yeah. That's a that's a good point, Andrew. I do think the the fact that the state has a monopoly on education uh, is a significant piece of
0: this. Um, now, was that the pl- so so? You know, when we look back on the history of public schools, public schools were essentially um, run by uh, Protestants, uh, especially in North America initially. Right. So they weren't so. But then you have like guys like Eugene Mann and and a bunch of socialists, Horace, Horace, sorry, Horace Mann, um, Horace Mann, who was pushing this public education on people because they saw what it could inevitably lead to. So was was that another case where we just didn't see the, the dangerous seed that was planted in this movement uh, until it's come to full bloom?
2: Yeah, a little bit. Um, so public education, universal public education, it's a 19th century phenomenon as well. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, worldwide, it doesn't exist before that. Um, before that education took place, and where it took place, it was it was done by Christians because Christians saw it as a an obvious mandate within Scripture to educate and disciple the next generation, and they would have said that it is uh, ought to be universally enjoyed as far as we can offer education to the young. We're doing God's will this is a good thing to offer. So if the possibility, if the state can come behind that and offer it universally to every child, Christians are going to think, well, that's a pretty good thing. We're going to offer a genuine good because if you give a person an education, a good education, it is transformative on a human level. And if you can tether it furthermore to the knowledge of God um, through scriptural, you know, biblical teaching in the schools, Further good. This is terrific. We're we're enhancing the church's mission here, and we're putting the funding, you know, the full funding of the society behind this. This is great. So I I, I don't know if the church sees the like it, it's not like it was a terrible thing to do, in in that sense, but it presumes that the the society is going to share the Christian presuppositions there and. At the time, let's say in Ontario, where we are, where I am right now, Egerton Ryerson proposes something like a Protestant public school system, and uh, he does it against the Anglicans. The Anglicans want it to be Anglican. And, uh, you know, the... uh, family compact. They wanted an Anglican school system. And Ryerson, who's a Methodist, says, heck no, we're not going to have, you know, one form of Protestant education. Let's have it for all the Protestants, the Presbyterians. They all gang up and they say, okay, well, we'll have this. And we won't specify that that it be an Anglican, but we'll talk about general Christian principles. We'll, We'll be together on that. Horace Mann's a different thing altogether in the U.S., he has, he has a more of a, um, hu- well, a humanist agenda. He wants, to te- he wants to decouple it from Christianity, I think. Um, but he's, it's the same time period, and, and, but that's the U.S. Canada is far more conservative than the U.S. on this. And uh, and Ryerson's public school system, I mean, you, if you read the Ontario um, Education Act, it's explicitly Christian. And yeah. and some people are angry about that. They want it gone. Yeah. They want that. We
0: just actually we actually just talked about the Halton district, right? Uh, asking for an amendment that would excise Judeo-Christian principles uh, from the the Ontario Education yep. Act. So, yep. so what you're basically yep. saying Be- is, the
1: stake of the church is something that has <laughs> been on uh, horrendous display in the last two and a half years, is the assumption of the myth of neutrality in the world. Yeah. And yeah. That we that's can it, that... coexist with the pagans that aren't going to advance their own dominion mandate and bring their own theocracy to bear and require that we live by their standards. We assume they don't do that. We can coexist together. We just got to put a bumper sticker on it. So the church apparently is prone <laughs> to making that mistake and has been for a while.
2: It's bought mm. the myth of met- neutrality for a long time after everyone else has abandoned it the myth of neutrality was, was a myth and it was a but it was in a sense a true myth there was a sense of neutrality there were people that would have, who defended the marriage unit even even when they personally contradicted it. they would have said socially it's a good thing for marriages to be upheld Um, I just want to have an affair, but I don't want all marriage to go away. But so I personally will contradict it, but I don't want marriage to be abolished or anything like that, right? So they they would hold to that. And that would include, you know, the left and the right, um, very much so. And that's all probably going all the way up until the 1960s, more or less. And but over the past 50 years, that social consensus has evaporated and that's no longer a neutral ground. Now it's very much a contested political ground. And the church has not been able to recover from that and realize the educational implications of that, which is that you can no longer then support a public system because it's moving away from what once would have been common goods. They, the left uh, increasingly rejects this common good. And there is no common good anymore. And that's why people are, are lament the fact that the public square is so divisive and hostile. It really is. Um and, and they wish that somebody would be able to, you know, speak rationally, calmly and pull us together, but they but they can't. Mm-hmm. And and
0: so so I want to stop you there because I want to ask a question. Is it a bad thing that we're waking up to the myth of neutrality? Or can we be thankful that that's the reality of the situation? Is this a perfect time for the churches to speak into that and say Yes, there is essentially press that biblical antithesis that there's you're only going to be about making two kingdoms. It's either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan, the the, the city of God or the city of man, as Augustine would put it. Right. Is is that the, the this should be a moment where the church says, aha. This is our opportunity, jumps should out of its seat and then preaches the gospel? Be. Or should we be lamenting the the death of the common good and, and all these things? Or is that maybe a vestige of the past that so we got to say uh, it it was only the common good in the sense that the majority of the, si- uh, the, the, the society that we lived in in the West was essentially Christian and had that operating assumption, but... We have to make those sort of things explicit. It's like, So help me kind of articulate this better and think through this more. So the
2: common good is still common good. Um, a uh, The Christian common good that people who were not Christians uh, would not have agreed with conceptually still benefited from it materially. Uh, the free society that they enjoyed, the sense of human dignity that came along with it, the sense that... Uh, Social injustices would have been perceived by all. Racism would be decried as a, an affront against the idea of human dignity, equal human dignity under the law uh, in terms of so forth. Those are Christian viewpoints. They're not identity groups. They're not Christian identity groups. Those are genuine human goods and they're common goods. Um, but Christians are the only ones who held it. And now that they are no longer in a position of political authority in any way, even implicitly, and in fact, we're tr- we're going against that. Um, there are going to be fewer people who are able to defend that common ground, and it's not going to come. The solution is not going to come from the public institutions because they have been captured by the enemies of Christianity, and by the enemies of the very things that were things that everyone enjoyed, namely the common goods I just talked about. So there, it it for me every crisis, and this is one, um, is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for Christians to assert very clearly what the good is that Christianity does offer to the world. Before, For a long time, it was perceived as not particularly Christian. We all agree on that. Even if I'm an atheist, I can still think and assert that marriage is a good, you know, human beings have dignity, etc. Well now, they don't say that anymore. For the most, mm-hmm. very few people were.
0: because it, it was truly a, a Christian understanding. It, it was, Im- but it was version. implicit
2: for them. They didn't yes. recognize it as such. Now only yep. Christians are going to say it. However, if they are heard, it will benefit everybody, including those who don't see the necessity for it. They will. So it is an opportunity for Christianity to be to be bright and clear. The lines are there. The the, the darkness is getting darker all the much better for the light to shine brightly, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Back to Matt's question. His question was, what what does the church do? So number one, um, a serious consideration of of, of how we deal with the education of our children. And it may be costly and inconvenient, but it's worth it. Because as you said, the institutions have been captured. Number two, Christians need to understand that in this post-post-Christian world, it's not even a post-Christian world, it's a post-post- Christian world, where people in their 30s have never heard about Moses, and people in their 40s don't know about the Ten Commandments. So we're we're post-post-Christian. The darkness is abounding. The Christian must understand that our duty to shine as lights with not just the gospel, but the truth that God's ways and God's design are for the good and benefit and fruitfulness and flourishing of a culture. And, and lest we want to see our world go further down this path of self-destruction, we must hold out the truth of the good design of God. So education, the proclamation of the good design of God and engage in the culture. What else should the church do, whether it's internally? So whether it's individuals, whether it's the the churches, local churches internally or externally in terms of engagement, what else should the church be doing and thinking about and considering um, before we all become cyborgs? <laughs>
2: Well, that's the direction we're all mm-hmm. going, right? So, um, I'll I'll tell you how I responded to it. I think that there is a uh, there was a few years back a work by Dreyer, the Benedict Option, in which he effectively noticed what we're talking about here—that we're descending into a new Dark Ages. Yes, and so we'll do what Benedict did: we'll retreat into monasteries, et cetera, or the equivalent. I mean, it's a it's a metaphor. And my immediate response was, I recognize and agree with your assessment of the landscape in the sense that it's getting darker and darker, and we need to um, think about what we're doing and mobilize. And, and, but I don't think that, that the Benedict option is an option because they're coming after us where we are. Technology is invasive, it is. It will control everything down to the point of, again, finances and personal movement and freedoms. We've seen that under COVID. That that was obvious to me, and it didn't seem obvious to him uh, at the time. That h- how much different our era was than that. All the same, I do think that there is a need to develop distinctively Christian institutions and to move away from the evangelical. Uh, distaste for institutions. Institutions are there for common goods. You, you can't just have your family. You have to build up institutions that are of benefit for Like an individual church of a hundred, a few hundred people cannot build a school and sustain it, let alone a university, let alone a legal system. You need to work collaboratively together and you have to build institutions to do that. And that will take, I mean, it's where they exist You should seek to strengthen them, and improve them, and really genuinely back them. I'm still at Tyndale for that reason, even though there are problems there. I I think that genuinely this is not something that should be abandoned lightly. uh, At the same and and start schools, and I did that as you mentioned at the outset. Founded Westminster Classical. The second thing, though, for me was to speak in the public square. in in media and so forth. And again, I did it in the area of education. My kids are not in the public school system. I wouldn't put them in the public school system. But who but me would (laughs) speak against these things in the public school system? Who but a Christian is going to say? I mean, there are a few people, but by and large, it was Christians that, like me, who spoke against it. But I spoke at a Queens Park rally, Andrew, and there were 10,000 people at it. And people came up to me and said, you're the only evangelical here.
1: Have you read that? What I'm the heck? Sure you've, they said, I'm what sure heck? you've heard about that letter. Um, we won't name names, but a letter from a particular uh, uh, Toronto seminary president that was written. Um, do I just call, I'm just? i going to call it out. Whatever. Whatever. Kirk Wellam, the president of Toronto Baptist Seminary, wrote a letter. And the letter kind of gained some traction. And it was a letter written to the students in, the, in, in his school. And he basically said, these guys that are making documentaries about themselves and thinking about political change and cultural engagement, they're just a flash in the pan. The dust will settle, and it's about loving Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, and that's it. So don't think about this political, cultural stuff. Don't think about the public square. Just love Jesus, preach the gospel, go to church. The dust will settle, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, other than some pretty vile slander in the letter towards men who've been trying to engage in cultural, the cultural sphere and in the political world, the overall sentiment of the letter was— the ship is going down. Uh, Don't polish the brass on the Titanic. Just love Jesus and preach the gospel. And that's it. If it goes down, it goes down. So the answer, your your question, why was no one there is because the church has been doing the exact opposite of what we've been talking about for the last number of generations, (laughs) which is disengage, pull back entirely (laughs) Uh, just worry about the Bible and the gospel and don't worry about all this other stuff. This is all, this is extra, it's adiophora, forget about it, it's not essential.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the, also the exact opposite yes. of the Great Commission. So, we, so, so <laughs> we are,
1: it, it's funny that as, we, as we're talking about what the church needs to do, we are not just fighting against the world. We are fighting against the evangelical industrial complex. To your point about the importance of community, of you know, a church of a hundred can't do it. You need other people around you. And I would agree. And one of the most disheartening things about the last two and a half years is that if you are a church of a hundred and you want to unite with other like minded believers in churches who will not bow to statism, but will understand they are to push back, good luck finding a church within three hours that agrees with you, because chances Mm. are 95 percent of the churches, for whatever reason, gave the pinch of incense to the altar of Caesar because it afforded them the comfort. And so try finding other like minded Christians and churches that will say we will not bow to Caesar. We must obey God rather than man. And part of how we do that is by speaking out. It rallies by speaking out about various subjects and by engaging culturally. So we're not even fighting against just the world. We're fighting against this behemoth of cultural, weak, squishy evangelicalism. That is telling the three of us stop doing what you're doing, just preach the gospel, and that's all I got to worry about. So it's an internal and an external battle, which is disheartening in the sense that this is what it is, um, but encouraging in the fact that there are men who are still willing to stand up and do it, difficult though it may be, and even though friendly fire abounds apparently in the in 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 the Christian army.
2: Well, so. I didn't know about this letter. Uh, Kirk's a friend of mine, Kirk Wallen. I have not read the letter. Uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary, where he's the principal, is associated with the church I go to, Jarvis Street Baptist. It's a ministry of that church. I, d- I haven't read the letter. Um, so I, don't, I, I can't speak to the specifics of what he said there. It doesn't sound um, like I'm going to be very happy with it from what you're saying, Andrew. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, but so one of the things that I find very uh, dismaying that I, I've seen arisen out of the last uh, two and a half years is Christians turning on other Christians um, and, and using really hostile and inflammatory language and, and turning on one another, which seems to me the work of the devil. Uh, and it seems to have come from all over the place uh, from different angles, from different sides. And um, I mean, that's, that's truly unfortunate. I, I don't think, my sense that is that TBS is a good institution, uh, but I would say that it does what a seminary does, which is a seminary prepares people for pastoral ministry. However, an aspect of pastoral ministry that goes beyond the traditional remit of t- pastoral ministry but is an implication of the church is not just preaching word, and, you know, administering word and sacrament. That would be uh, word, sacrament, pastoral care. That's what a pastor does, right? But that is not the limit of what a church does. A church will engage in all areas of life, but you can't expect a seminary to do anything other than that because that's what seminaries do. But it there should be a greater vision for the church than just those things because there are things that are needed beyond <laughs> preaching the gospel mm-hmm. so you're the... saying
0: you're saying that the scope of the vision uh, 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 of the gospel that is being promoted in many seminaries not not only in Canada but across the world is truncated it's too small it, it doesn't encompass all these different No I would things. say
2: that a seminary cannot do what a Christian university does. I'd say there's a difference there. And I keep hearing from pastors, you got to get your kids to the seminary. You know, the, 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 the vocation, I don't know if you're both pastors, I know Andrew is, that's, that's your vocation. You're there to be a pastor. That was why you, you felt that call and so forth. And that's a central and important call. And it's a vital calling. And, and there's, you cannot remove that. However, the Christian University does a lot more than that. And I don't know how many times, as a, an adult convert coming back to Canada, I've heard from people that Christian universities, ah, they don't matter. Uh, infinite frustration to me because actually there is a great deal that needs to be said on the COVID topic. This is not just an offense on the prerogatives of the church, the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship, the freedom to assemble. It's it's an assault on human nature, common human nature. The Christian universities should be speaking to that. I happen to think that pastors should be as well. But there is a gray area in this where it says, well, but actually the state also has some sort of interest in preserving the public good and interests in health. But again, as we've just said, it doesn't, It can't even define what human nature is. It thinks that human health includes allowing to uh, people, in fact, financing gender transitions and committing abortions and stuff like that. So it's totally lost the plot.
0: And funding the experiments that lead to <laughs> the <laughs> creation of the exact virus that shut down the world for for two two and a half years, right? Right. Uh, so well, yeah,
2: it, it, yeah, all of those things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm sorry if that's the case. I, again, I don't know what Kirk said, but so the church. Uh, it almost
1: yeah. seems that the church, that the the, the the believers in Canada in North America take for granted the fact that the blessings in the country that we have are so because of men who did the things that we're talking about. They built institutions. They engaged uh, tirelessly in the political cultural world. This is why you have the abolition of slavery, because Christians believe that we need to engage in the political sphere, in the cultural world right. and we take that for granted. And so we we hold all the baskets of the mm-hmm. fruit that they've given us and we're enjoying all these uh, we're enjoying all this delicious fruit and we're basically saying, Ah, oh, we don't need to do any of that stuff. We can just enjoy the fruit and we take for granted that if if Christians hundred and fifty years ago had the same worldview mentality that we do, we would be like Saudi Arabia we would be like countries yeah, well, ca- ca- where ca- just, the case in just point chaos. here is you're going
2: to mention wilberforce w- Wilberforce, the abolitionist the the, the the key figure associated with the abolition of slavery in england he's not a he's not a clergyman he's not a pastor but he but he had an understanding of the implications of christianity with respect to human nature and he was willing to fight for that again It isn't pastors that need to fight this as if it were only the. if we need to get pastors to be social activists. No, you need the whole church to become aware of their responsibility there. And maybe maybe uh Kirk's point he, here is we don't need pastors to go into politics or to regard themselves as politicians. That might be to his point, and I would agree with him there because they they can't dispense with the one thing that they can do indispensably. they're calling their vocation to preach the gospel. fair enough. but is it the should the church be speaking against the uh, violations of human nature and the way in which we're being pushed into slavery? Uh, Yeah, I think we should, and he would agree with that. I'm pretty sure as well. So again, this seems to me—I don't know how this dialogue is playing out—and I find it very uh, distressing to hear that it is so. Um, But it sounds to me like I'm not going to be happy with what he said. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I could see where he might be coming from on that, and I think you could. To your point,
1: though, you're right that that the pastors—so Wilberforce doesn't exist in a bubble right who who was he was right. he was disciple was it whitfield was it um, charles hodge who is wh- one of these one of these key one of these key puritan figures probably a pastor is discipling wilberforce and so these ideas aren't coming out of nowhere he's clearly being taught and discipled Yeah correctly. and he was good friends with John yeah, Newton and so these, too Yeah was was and so so chances are these these men are yeah. being the, what they're getting from their pastors may, he may not be up there giving a particularly political speech but he's not being
0: discouraged from it. He's not being told, "No, no, no, no don't do that. Yeah. That's that's not for you." He was he, he was like a big a big part of that movement too. Was also Granville Sharp. And you're talking about a generalist. Uh, Granville Sharp literally came up with an extraordinarily important. Um, Literary, he kind of understood it in, in the Greek, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, that has kind of transformed like Greek literacy, but he was also a lawyer, and he was a thoroughgoing Christian who was extraordinarily smart in so many different he was areas. a Christian humanist,
2: as I caught, said yeah. earlier, right?
0: Yeah, okay, yeah. He, would he have called himself a, a in that sense? Probably not. No, probably no, okay. not. But he he was so well versed in the the humanities that he he was uh, extraordinarily tan- talented in all these general areas. Okay. Well, Dr. Masson, thank you so much. It's always good. I'm sure we could talk for hours yeah. on end. Uh it, it's really fun to have these discussions and yeah, to to make those good distinctions like you've laid out for us and Uh, not only kind of understand the underpinnings of a lot of what we're seeing in our day and age, the philosophy that we're seeing put into praxis right now, but also to say, hey, this is an opportunity, a moment for the church to push the biblical antithesis, and for churches to train and equip their people to go out in the world and preach the gospel in their various vocations. pressing that biblical antithesis into all of life. So we really, really appreciate you coming on, spending so much time, having these big conversations. So I want to just, before we shut down this uh, conversation, Dr. Masson, where can people get more of you? Where can they see your writing, uh, see your teachings, send them to what's best uh, for them to get more of Dr. Scott Masson?
2: I think, I mean, I've put a fair bit of material on my youtube channel <clears throat> um and uh i think i got the tag lit prof now utah You're C, lit. you know they lit. You, you get a, yeah He's i got lit, lit prof price oh. lit up
0: whoa lit
2: prof- that's cool yeah so i'm we the,
0: didn't know we were hanging out with such I'm a the cool lit professor prof now how about <laughs> that
2: anyway and i've got a lot of stuff up there it's it, it's usually in relation to great works of literature i'm an english professor right but mm-hmm. it, it is a christian worldview engaging with that particular subject I, I do think it takes time to develop a christian worldview in a way that's going to integrate with culture that will allow you to see how things developed as they did and that's probably the best place i do have a web personal website scottmasson.ca.
1: the last time we um, were together of... at the christians at care conference you'd mentioned that the epic times had asked you to write a particular article I don't know if you're allowed or.
2: Yeah, I don't know if I ever even got okay. to it. They, basically, I can write whenever I want, um, but um, I, I have to get approval and so forth. But you know, I, mm. I they've got me as somebody who's a columnist, as it were. I just don't. Um, I'm trying to do big picture things, and I don't want to always be commenting on current affairs. I did yes. under COVID. I threw myself into the fray because I thought I have to be speaking here. I still think there's an urgent need there, but again, the tyranny of the urgent can't drive me on all that sort of thing.
0: Especially if you can, if you have the skill set to kind of give the broad That's view. That's my so, best.
2: My best yeah. ability is the uh, the fact that I'm a generalist, and there's no <laughs> place in this world for generalists. And sadly, I, even, sadly. even when it comes to marketing myself, um, you know, is there something? A particular topic you can speak on, and my answer is I can speak on every topic and I, I don't mean to say that <laughs> I mean it sounds pretty arrogant but i, I in a sense i I, I can I, yeah. I have purpose because you have a an integrated
0: worldview yeah yeah, yeah purposefully
2: yeah. tried to be brought. Uh-huh. yeah
0: and, and and that's that's how like we've lost the Renaissance man because of a lot of what we've been talking about today. We don't understand uni- unity amongst diversity. We don't understand how all these different disciplines are rooted and grounded into um, you know theology and and ultimately the knowledge that we possess in Christ. like at one point, we have that understanding. No longer do we. So we're just all atoms floating around the universe um, without the ability to connect things together. So bring back the generalists. I'm so thankful that you came on with us. Thank you. Hopefully this is uh, not the last conversation we can have, Dr. Masson. No, I hope not. Thank you.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit
0: our website at www.libertycoalitioncanada.com.